0: Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in productivity and professional development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and happy to bring you ideas and resources that will help you build your professional development plan. Thanks for listening and for your great feedback. And speaking of that feedback, uh, do me a favor. Go to our homepage and look for the graphic that says podcast Survey. It's a five-minute exercise. If you don't mind, take it. Tell me what you'd like to hear in terms of topics and guests as we plan for our 2021 program year. Proud of the 75 episodes we have now completed, and we've got some really good ones coming up in the next few weeks and months ahead. Uh, As a further incentive for you to consider the podcast survey, I'm going to lift up three nonprofit organizations during our special New Year's Eve episode. Uh, If you'd like to be considered, we'll pick them at random. Uh, Just make sure you indicate which organization you represent in the final field of that survey. Well, I had a fantastic conversation in this episode with Chris Carney, who has a remarkable global perspective on all things related to philanthropy. He's literally a pioneer in the field of donor and prospect research, starting his company called Factory in 1990. Now, most of his work originates in the UK and Spain, but he truly has a global view of all topics related to fundraising. Among his many published works, one article caught my attention in particular, and it actually led to the title of this episode about fundraising in a perfect storm, which is something we can all certainly understand right now. Now, there's lots to learn here, and chief among the learning is, of course, that while these are global issues Chris and I talk about, they really have local implications. You know, we discussed what is exactly this perfect storm and how is it affecting high net worth philanthropists and you and I, the fundraisers that are seeking their support. We also talked about venture philanthropy and why we should pay more attention to it, and how it's affecting the mindset of many of our donors. And finally, Chris reels off a series of specific pieces of advice for every nonprofit leader. Uh, You'll want to stick around for that. Well, don't forget to check out the show notes. This is episode number 76. Just go to the podcast or the news page at PattonMcDowell.com, and you'll find all of the resources, the links, the books, as well as more information on Chris and the great work he is doing at Factory all over the world. Speaking of resources, make sure while you're on our website, connect with us. Let us know if you'd like more information on any of our programs. In particular, two of them have openings for the spring of 2021, uh, Leadership Gift School and our Mastermind Leadership Coaching Program. Let us know if we can help you on your professional journey to nonprofit leadership. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Chris Carney. Chris, thank you for joining me on the path. It's a pleasure. It's lovely to be here. I'm excited for this conversation, Chris. You've literally been a pioneer in the field of prospect research and all elements of philanthropy. You have a unique global perspective, I think, frankly, that's going to be a huge benefit to our listeners Regardless of where they are because I, I know some of these global themes are also local themes and ones that nonprofit leaders need to better understand so thank you for this conversation and I guess let's start with this what is factory uh, that you started a, a few years ago and and how did you get into this kind of work
1: well that, thank you beton that's that's great I mean yes I started factory um, it feels like an entirely different age in 1990 um, uh, after after working for a number of years in London as a as a regular fundraiser, I worked with a muscular dystrophy campaign and then with an international NGO, and then I ran an appeal for a, one of the big London teaching hospitals. Um, I got interested in research because I'd done some research in the House of Commons in in the Parliament in the UK for uh, a member of Parliament there, and realised I suppose like everyone else is realising around that time that that research was a really strong addition to fundraising. It made one's fundraising a lot better if one did some research beforehand and, uh, and it got in, fell into the world of prospect research through that.
0: Yeah, I love that. And that, I think that it's still not fully understood. Chris would be my opinion. And that nonprofit leaders perhaps could do a better job bolstering the, the research around. And I guess you do a combination of work around, if, if I come to you as an organization, you help me both understand the, the donors I already have as well as identify those maybe I'm not aware of?
1: Well, we do a number a number of things. I mean, yes, we certainly try and help organizations to understand these wonderful, lovely philanthropists, uh, the, <laughs> the high-level donors, which is what, where we really focus. Um, we, help, we try and help orga- organizations understand them. Uh, we certainly try and help organizations to build prospect pipelines so that they can start to to, to build towards a, a, a campaign or or extend a campaign. Um, and then I also work as a, as a consultant and trainer, so I, I consult with organizations and train organizations, particularly board level uh, at board level, um, in 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 this strange and weird and wonderful world of philanthropy, and particularly uh, philanthropy in, in Europe and, uh, and in the in the Middle East.
0: Uh, it's fascinating. And I'm eager to get into it because I obviously I have I've looked at your work and some of the great writing you've done. I think you've published three books now and multiple articles on the field. So I hope our listeners will get a chance to know you and your work even better. Before we get into some of that, uh, I guess I'm asking my guests, Chris, how are you adapting or how have you adapted to this kind of pandemic environment? I, I guess a lot of your work obviously was digital and research oriented but has it changed the nature of the work you're doing since the pandemic began
1: yes i mean of course i'm no longer i'm no longer on airplanes every two weeks uh, <laughs> right. reduce my carbon footprint quite dramatically thank heavens <laughs> um, um it's done a couple of things i mean it, it's certainly shown me that um uh, some of the meetings i used to go to uh, on an airplane probably could have been avoided very successfully and done on online instead. Um, it also it's also hit though the kind of emotional side of this work. You know, when you work in in any nonprofit and you work in the in the philanthropic sector, a lot of the content of what we do and a lot of the motivation for why we do it is the is the emotional part of it. It's the it's the right. it's the, the the emotion of working alongside a, a field officer in UNHCR who's just back from a field trip to a, you know dreadful uh, refugee situation it's the emotion of working alongside a, a uh, one of the medical teams from msf doctors without borders um uh who you know who's got a story to tell a strong story to tell and and that bit is really really hard to reproduce online you know that that kind of face-to-face right heart-to-heart contact and 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 uh, i admit i'm i'm missing it very much
0: well, and so many of the issues you're studying is more than just digital research, isn't it? You really get at the causes, which I'm guessing in many cases are exacerbated, of course, by the limited mobility and, and all the issues related to COVID-19.
1: Absolutely. I mean, we've had, you know, here in Europe, we've had terrible impacts on, on on poverty here. Um poor people have got you know substantially poorer in many cases thanks to this this uh the lockdowns and the economic crunch um and so you know organizations like the red cross and you know organizations involved in the in social services activities are are really stretched and and again as a a fundraiser you know you can you know you can turn that stretch into uh into some really powerful uh messaging but you can only do it if you're you know if you're in, in in direct contact with the folk who are out there on the front line and that's that for me has been a has been a tricky uh, area to negotiate
0: such a good point and and we'll talk more about that because i know you're helping some of the organizations and individuals you work with with that bridge so to speak of without the live connection how do we translate these messages to our donors but I guess before we go there, Chris, I have to ask you one more question. I've been asking my guests how you mentioned uh, before we started recording, we're, we're recording this at the end of 2020. Um, you're juggling tons of activity. How do you personally kind of stay organized given the, the kind of connections and projects and clients that you're juggling literally across the world?
1: Well, um, anyone who knows my, who sees my picture knows that I'm completely bald and that's from tearing my <laughs> hair out in frustration, <laughs> but more seriously, I mean, I do what, what I think lots of us do. you know, I, I sit here with a Monday morning with a, with a, with a planner and work out my week. Uh, I plan 60% of my week. I make sure there's 40% that, you know, that, that, that is there for emergencies. As <laughs>
0: right. Right.
1: And, and I use a little app on my, on my phone, um, to record, you know, to, to record all my time so that every every quarter I can look back at my time and say, okay, Chris, you know, you're doing a good job, mate, or oh dear, oh dear, you spent far too much time <laughs> on Google or whatever it is, you know. Yes, yes. <laughs> so I track I track my time really closely, and that I find that that feedback loop really useful.
0: I love that. Um, I have established a similar routine of a kind of weekly review ritual. Which indeed reveals sometimes things that went well, but often things that might fall through the crack otherwise, and so uh, nice to see you have a similar routine. I like the sixty forty split because if if we try to overburden our calendar, we're assuredly going to be uh, knocked for a loop right with things that yeah. pop up yeah it's funny it's
1: funny i mean as as I've mentioned, I work you know all around Europe, and um, you know you get you get some cultural differences in this stuff. Um, and you know, I particularly like the, uh, the Dutch model. You know, the Dutch, will, will, who are very straight-speaking people, will, will, will say to you directly, "No, Chris, you know, I can't do that for you. Uh, I might be able to do it in, in a month's time, but I can't do it now." Whereas folk from other parts of Europe will tend to, <laughs> to promise the earth and not deliver. Sometimes, you know. So, uh, so I try and I try and I try and keep to my, as far as I can to my promises. But I mean, any any of us working in this sector know that. Um, emergencies pop up all the time and people need a bit of support here or there. And so keeping 40% of the week free is a is my way of, of handling that stuff.
0: Uh, and I like that. And uh, perhaps we can learn something from the Dutch uh, here in the Indeed. southern part of the United States, often shrouded in politeness is the assurance things will get done, but often maybe we should say, no, we can't get it done at the speed yeah. that we hoped we might because of everything life brings us. Um, well, Chris, I want to dive in because uh, if you wrote a fascinating article, I think I saw it first on LinkedIn about philanthropy in this perfect storm. And of course, the pandemic, I think was central among your kind of research points, but maybe talk about that. It's more than just the pandemic, I think is what you are trying to illustrate in this perfect storm environment.
1: Yeah, there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on in, in philanthropy. And and. I actually feel very lucky to be alive at this time when when philanthropy is shifting so so dramatically um, and you know, I, I can talk about the places I know well so I, I can talk about, you know, particularly about Europe and how, how things are shifting. Sure, yeah. Um, I mean, we've got we've got a combination of factors going on. There's a new generation coming through and you know they've got they have just got different attitudes to wealth from their parents and it's really striking here in here in Europe, you know, if you if you speak to um, an older person in, say, France, you know, the, the, the attitude to wealth amongst, you know, and I, I'm excuse me if I use some stereotypes here, but it, but it, I think it helps to illustrate the point.
0: Sure, sure. Um, the attitude
1: to, to wealth to wealth amongst uh, older people in France is very very conservative. It's it's not something that's talked about in polite company. Um, money is just not simply not discussed. Um, and and philanthropy is definitely not discussed. And indeed, there's a fascinating piece of research by the Fondation de France, uh, the leading French foundation, um, which which says that um, uh, people find that, that, that the message is quite conflicting about philanthropy. You know, if they talk about their philanthropy in, the, in this traditional set of attitudes, if they talk about their philanthropy, it down it it degrades the value of the philanthropy itself for them. Right. And and so. There's a, there's a, you know, there's a, there is a sort of deeply embedded uh, view amongst that audience, uh, that segment of the, of the philanthropic population about uh, wealth and philanthropy. But boy, you know, you speak to their daughters and their sons, and it's a whole different ballgame. You know, with with uh, people uh, all, all younger generations all around Europe. Um, no longer holding with the old idea that on the one hand you did charity and on the other hand you did business and investment, and these two hands literally would never touch. Um, the 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 new uh, the new generation are often often described the the polar opposite. They, they they talk about using their money to do good right across the range, whether it's investing in a business that's going to provide 500 new places for employment, or whether it's you know, making a, a donation to a non-profit, um, and this shift in attitude to wealth um, causes, for many, perhaps more traditionally orientated non-profits, causes a lot of issues right. around how you how you present yourself, how you present yourself in a market in which there are such there is such a wide range of views. You know, you can't just put out one clean message anymore, um, and how you how you encourage folk. To to give, when what many of them are looking for is is well why can't I invest you know why can't I invest in a thing and create social return and social change uh, why should I why should I give to it so there's 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 a, there's a new generation and these new new attitudes to wealth appearing um, around
0: uh, around Europe. Okay, Chris, um, um, yeah. can I ask you a question about that real quick? I mean, yeah, yeah, how sure. is the profession of fundraising viewed, I guess, first by the older conservative generation? If, if they don't want to talk about philanthropy, I would think, and again, I think there are definite comparisons here in the US, but if they don't want to talk about their philanthropy, how do they react to the profession of fundraising? And I guess related question, then maybe the younger generation is more open to conversation with someone who is serving in that role.
1: Yeah, I mean there there is there is a whole range of attitudes, but it's uh, you know I I have friends in various parts of Europe who who um, have told me that they you know they that they do the traditional thing of sending out the annual the charity annual report at the end of the year to sort of tell their, their their major donors how they got on and and so on and and friends reporting some of their donors posting back the annual report saying please don't waste money on sending me this stuff. Wow. <laughs> so. Um, in the traditional world um, of of uh, philanthropy, the, the role of the fundraiser is tricky face to face with the donor. In fact, what happens is that the fundraisers then manage things so that someone else goes face to face, not the fundraiser. So, you know, the fundraiser does the, does the management role of sending in the the board president or the treasurer or um, the director of the organisation to have a right. Quite, quite right. a cup of tea and a quiet cup of tea and a conversation, you know. Um, whereas with younger generation, I got to be honest, I, I still think there's limited understanding in Europe as a whole of the role of fundraisers. You know, we, we've got many, many fewer fundraisers here than you have in the USA. Right. Um, so there's still limited understanding of the role, but I think people in that generation do do get the idea that that, that there needs to be some intermediary between them and and the cause, them and the, and, you know, the, the social cause that they're trying to trying to support. Right, right. Um, you know, a lot of this, and this is perhaps a second point, a lot of this is around the view in the younger generation that what's important is impact. And I know you're very familiar with this word in, in the USA, um, but it's still a relatively new word for us here in Europe, this idea of focusing on impact um, as the as the social change deriving from the the philanthropic activity that we're we're doing and when you focus on impact, it makes perfect sense that you need professionals between you, the donor and the social social outcome that you're seeking. You need professionals in between who are going to help you achieve that impact. And so amongst new generation or younger generation philanthropists, I'm seeing much more acceptance of the idea that there should be you know, a professional fundraiser and a professional program director and a professional, um, you know, accounts ma- account manager who who looks after them and their and their money.
0: Because I guess the and I think that is very akin to the U.S. Chris that the, our grandparents' generation would quietly give their philanthropy and not necessarily pursue exactly what happened. Is that fair that I trusted the philanthropic causes I gave to to create impact without ever really following up, but but the younger generation wants to literally see how that impact is occurring. Is that what you're seeing as well?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and and so you know, one one of the philanthropists that I, I know well here in here in Barcelona said to me uh, said to me a while ago, you know, Chris, you know, if you come to me with a you know a good solid project with clear outcomes, I could give you 10,000 10, euros. Um, if you come to me with a project that's got really, you know, significant and clear impact that, that you can measure, I could come up with a hundred thousand. Wow! If you come to me, come to me with a project that has those things and is an, an investment where there'll be some financial return for me, even if it's tiny, I could come up with a million. So that was her. That was her scale of how she sees, you know. The, the, the range moving from what you might call more or less pure charity through to uh, impact investment.
0: I love uh, that, and, Chris. Cause, and don't we, we tend to operate though in that first kind of phase you described, I think, right? We're, we're operating in the 10,000 pounds or dollars when yeah. the donor might entertain a million dollar discussion. Well, this is absolutely. And
1: this is part, this is part of this, of this perfect storm that we're, that we're in, which is that, um, many many philanthropists here in europe and and uh, we'll talk in a minute i think about a bunch of philanthropists but but many many um philanthropists here in europe um have moved much faster than their non-profit um, partners and friends as it were and and are looking for uh for impact investments or investments with impact uh impact investments um and and not finding them, you know, and 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 we we as a sector are are simply not getting in there fast enough with um, with uh, with value propositions which meet the aspirations of this of this group.
0: Uh, you had a fantastic quote, and I may be paraphrasing, but you made a comment that philanthropists are moving quickly but why are many fundraisers slowing down? Is that a result, Chris, of we're still trying to push for our traditional operational fundraising needs? And and in fact, our donors want us to talk about something different.
1: Absolutely. I mean, this has always been a problem between, you know, this is partly why uh, I so much enjoy this work. You know, it's always been a problem, the, the issue between what the organization wants or believes it wants what the fundraiser can therefore kind of package up and offer and what the philanthropists are looking for. Uh, It's always been an issue from the very beginning, I think, you know, I imagine early philanthropists had the same frustrations about not being able to quite find what they wanted in terms of their, their philanthropic actions, but it's becoming quite acute now um, because we're in a, we're in a, we're in a world now where, uh, and again, I'm sorry to your listeners if they're if they're very used to this in the US. For us here in Europe, it's still, still a big journey of discovery. <laughs> sure. So we're, 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 in a world, we're in a world where um, the private banks have entered uh, our sector in, in, in numbers now in Europe, and it was led originally by UBS, Union Bank Suisse uh, in Switzerland, but now pretty much all the significant private wealth management banks are now, uh, have now got some kind of philanthropic offering. Um, and what they're offering to their clients is two things. Either, okay, you're going, you want to give, well, why not just give through the bank foundation? Interesting. We'll, you know, we'll look after it all for you. And secondly, well, do you really want to give? Why don't you invest in this social impact and the social enterprise and the social impact uh, um, uh, plan that we've got or offering that we've got, and then you can create impact and also get money back. You, know, you, can, you can earn on this, on this social impact. Um, and, and that is a you know a it's a very strong offer b these people these individuals in the private banks are very 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 well positioned to offer offer maybe these special offers to their to their clients and and we fundraisers need to get moving if we're going to uh, if we're going to keep up or anything like keep up with uh, with what the, the the private banks can offer
0: Such a good point, Chris. It it doesn't feel like the same philanthropy, and I don't mean to dismiss the philanthropic potential for that type of vehicle that the banks are offering, but it does strike me what you just said, that as fundraisers, I guess we have to even better articulate the impact of direct giving, or how are you advising your clients in light of that offer to philanthropists themselves?
1: Well, the thing that we have which the banks really do not have. It's the thing that I touched on at the beginning. We have extraordinary emotional content, and and for many philanthropists, this is not really. I mean, it's not all about. Um, it's not all about impact in a kind of scientific sense. Right. It's often about the experience, and so um, one of the philanthropists, another of the philanthropists I know well here. Um, uh who's uh, helped out on a on a hospital um, program that uh, i've worked on a hospital clown program that i've worked on um you know she she comes to the hospitals she she comes to the training sessions with the clowns she gets an experience there which you know which no bank could ever ever <laughs>
0: exactly. offer and exactly it, and it's that
1: it's that emotional content which um which uh, I think differentiates us from, from everyone else in the sector, and, and and you know in the US I know you have you know strong competition from the donor advised funds, the big the right uh, you know, similarities and so on. Yeah, of, yeah, of this world. Um, and I think we need to we need to keep on offering, pressing uh, our uh, pressing our uh, the offer of of of, of unique experience, uh, unique. Uh, emotional and 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 uh, in depth experience that we can offer offer individuals.
0: Because even during a pandemic, it, your advice, I guess, to fundraisers is you, you've got to put something more compelling on the menu. That experiential, perhaps philanthropy, or demonstrate impact at a greater scale. Uh, otherwise, these philanthropists, Chris, I guess they're going to find something else, right? Is that literally what you're seeing? That if if my nonprofit doesn't offer that philanthropic opportunity they're going to go somewhere else
1: yeah they're going to go somewhere else and and you know there is plenty plenty of plenty of other places that they can go to you know
0: a lot of good causes Uh, yep yeah Uh, i mean another another
1: factor in in this a longer term factor which a number of philanthropists have commented on to me is 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 the disinter? I can I can hardly say the word disintermediation. So <laughs> yeah,
0: this is, a lot of syllables um, there. Yes,
1: a lot of syllables. Yeah. <laughs> um, luckily, it's the same word in Catalan and French, so I can manage it in multiple languages. Um, and this is this what's going on here is that um, you know the the, the traditional international NGO model uh, here in here in Europe, I know in the US as well, has been you know we've got uh, we've got a, a, a a large uh, NGO based in a based in a northern northern location, you know, northern state, as it were, Europe or the US, um, and uh, that is the intermediary between the donor in the US and the recipient organization in India or Ghana or or, Cong- or the Congo, or wherever it is. Um, what's going on now with with growing internet, and growing fundraising training in in those countries? Um, is of course those organizations are sticking up their own websites. And so you know donors are philanthropists in Europe I'm hearing increasing increasingly talking about you know getting on a plane and flying to Zambia or the Congo or wherever it wherever, wherever it is and dealing directly with uh, NGOs in country rather than rather than working through the
0: intermediary. NGOs. Yeah.
1: You know, and that's 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 a trend that's beginning, it's going to get stronger, we're going to have to work out how to justify, uh, if indeed we should be justifying, the purpose of the value of the intermediary in the U.S. or, or Europe who, who would normally handle the cash heading down there.
0: Is that, I was going to ask you, is that a good thing, Chris? Because as you know, there are lots of intermediaries, community foundations, uh, United Way organizations and things like that that, you know, make the case that they are the right person to collect and, in essence, distribute philanthropic dollars because they understand the community needs. But I guess what you're saying is some of these philanthropists are going to jump right over that stage, right? They want to go directly to the causes they're investing in.
1: Yeah, and it's not all perfect. I mean, some of them do it and get their fingers burnt. Uh, I know at least a couple who, who've done it and it hasn't worked, and they've actually gone back to to using the intermediary because the intermediary provides quality control
0: right um, a good point. and
1: and i think you know i think that's that's a point that we need to keep emphasizing to to donors but i do think we need to look honestly at uh, at the models we've got particularly in the light of what's been happening not only with the internet but what we've, what we've learned through covid in terms of how how much how effective distance learning distance uh, work can be um i think we need to look look at that and, and look honestly at it
0: that's fantastic, Chris. Is, it, is there anything else about the perfect storm that you would advise, I guess, fundraisers and/or nonprofit leaders to contemplate?
1: Well, um, the, the, one of the key issues in, in the whole COVID business has been you know, just how you how you maintain relationships with uh, with with philanthropists, and and that's been really difficult to to do. Um, I think the good fundraisers have done it by probably lowering expectations in terms of funding from the donor but uh working extra hard to keep keep the donors interested in what they're doing even if the donor is not actually going to manage to give this year so i had a, I had a, a meeting uh last week with a uh, a donor here and you know he told me already his business would have been really tr- really tricky for him this year uh, but I was determined to meet him um, and we just had a really good chat and I think next year he'll come back and give again. But, but you know, he's,
0: uh,
1: our, our, our people of wealth here in, in Europe, some of them are doing really well, but some of them are not doing so well. We just need to keep, keep those relationships going until they recover um, their philanthropic capacity.
0: That's a great point. Uh, and, and yeah, it is a terrible mistake, I think, to discard the the loyal donor who maybe is having a difficult year. Stay in touch, find a way to connect because they'll reward you, I think, in the long run if you show that relationship focus. And mm-hmm. Chris, I, I guess I want to ask you, you've alluded to venture philanthropy. Talk about what what is venture philanthropy and how are you seeing that emerge perhaps on the European, if not the global scene?
1: So venture philanthropy is um, uh, is a style of philanthropy that uh, grew up uh, in in the U.S., um, uh, which was developed um, by venture capitalists who wanted to apply this, the same models of venture capital on on their philanthropy. Um, so it combines uh, an investment approach, and they call it investment rather than giving, it's useful interesting terminology. Uh, an investment right. approach with um, with support so uh not just giving the money but actually getting engaged with the organization to focus on the organization's growth so again not not just about the the project or the or the cause but actually can i make this organization scale up a bit
0: right good um
1: um, it's focused on uh getting in but also getting out in other words can i leave when i you know when i stop supporting this organization can i leave it in a better place and when I found it, um, and and you know in a, in a more sustainable place, um, and it's focused on clever financial tools. So, do they really need a donation, or could I lend them the money, or should we should we be talking about a, you know, a social impact bond for this uh, project or this organisation? Um, we, should we be setting up a little company and and developing a, a social enterprise here? In other words. Can we do stuff that's a bit cleverer than just simply writing a check? Um, What we've seen here in Europe has been, thanks to an organization here called the European Venture Philanthropy Association, EVPA, um, which I've been involved in and engaged in since since, since it's just soon after its beginnings.
0: Started, right.
1: Um, What we've seen here in Europe is a a, rapid, rapid growth of interest in and participation in venture philanthropy. Uh, and there's venture, there's now venture philanthropy funds, I think in, in every country in the EU. Um, and, uh, and they're now up in the, in the numbers of hundreds of, of venture philanthropy funds, whereas, you know, 10 or, or, or 15 years ago, there was really just a tiny handful.
0: It strikes me, Chris, as a nonprofit leader, uh, it it would benefit me to at least study and understand venture philanthropy. It doesn't mean my organization is necessarily ready for a creative or entrepreneurial partnership, but we might be, right? If, if I have a, a cause and a organization that could scale dramatically, I might be attractive to a venture philanthropist, but or how would you advise a nonprofit leader? Yeah, I guess not everyone is right for that path, I suppose.
1: Well, the- the interesting thing about venture philanthropy for me is is the the effect it's had on other philanthropists so you might call the venture philanthropists the kind of extremists you
0: know right, yeah, right
1: there are only a few hundred of them of the of these funds around around europe they're not it's not every single foundation it's not every single donor but those that handful of funds are having the most dramatic effect on the way that others in the sector think so We've seen, you know, big foundations here in Europe. Um, You may know that um, some of the biggest foundations are created out of savings banks, savings and loans banks.
0: Right, right.
1: Um, And some of the big Italian uh, savings and loans foundations um, have, uh, have set up really substantial, you know, 250 million euros in one case, um, uh, venture philanthropy funds as part of their grant making and investment um, program. Um, so it's you know whilst there's only a handful of of absolutely if you like pure <laughs> venture it's not it doesn't really become a pure thing it's always a mixture of stuff it like grants and loans and investments and so on but there's, there's, there's only a handful if you might say of of absolutely purist uh, venture for funds the effect on the rest of the sector has been substantial and that's where i think non-profit leaders need to need to focus is understanding this this uh New form of philanthropy. This form of philanthropy, um, understanding what's behind it, understanding who's you know who who are the sort of leading players in this in this area, and reflecting back on whether your more traditional philanthropists want to move in this direction because it looks like many of them do.
0: It's a great point and great advice, Chris. That even if I don't think any of my current significant donors are of a venture philanthropy mindset, they might be, right? Or they might become more influenced by that trend and I should be ready to talk about it. Exactly. Great. Speaking of trends that you've followed and I think we all um, make a mistake of looking philanthropy, maybe historically as a male dominated, you know, patriarchal kind of approach. And in fact, women are indeed making more and more of the philanthropic decisions. And I think Chris, you've, work directly with more and more women in uh, philanthropy. Talk about some of the trends you're seeing as you work with, you know, women in philanthropy.
1: Mm. Well, it's a classic men's mistake to believe that philanthropy has been a male (laughs) hobby. It's just not true. Thank (laughs) you for correcting me. It's just not true. Um, You know, I've got lovely, lovely examples. I mean, for example, one of the, um, you know, one of the, one of the very earliest uh, social entrepreneurs, um was uh, was a, was a sheikha a, a, a lady sheikh um, in uh, in Morocco who set up the world's first uh, first university uh, there uh, from an inheritance that she'd had from her dad he was a, he was a trader and we're talking now um, close on a thousand years ago so um, um uh, yeah it's just a, it's, it's something that um, we need to learn very rapidly to to, to get away from this idea that philanthropy is a, a a male hobby uh, the the, the, research, the research in this in this is really interesting there's lots of research on on uh high net worth philanthropy by women and high net worth philanthropy by men and it comes to all kinds of all kinds of conclusions but but never total agreement in other words there's there's no clear you know massive difference between what women do what high net worth women do and what high net worth men do in terms of in terms of philanthropy at least from the the research but you can see some sort of flavoring um which which i think is is interesting so um um last year i i organized the first uh, ever meeting in spain of women philanthropists and we had 20 women women philanthropists in a room in here in barcelona
0: fantastic
1: Um, and um you know it was it, it was fascinating to hear the discussion because we you know you heard the whole range of philanthropic giving there you heard the whole range from you know, very traditional you know charitable giving right the way through to um some fascinating stuff on on um, impact, impact investing and venture, and venture philanthropy but what, what above all what i heard was collaboration that these women and i think this is true with many women philanthropists are looking for opportunities to collaborate and learn from each other you know um in a way that perhaps some of the slightly more ego driven male philanthropists are perhaps not doing if i could right if I can right generalize horribly um um and so i think that theme of collaboration and that would mean in in, in organizations run by the listeners to this podcast would mean um perhaps thinking in terms more of circles of groups of working together on 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 programs and projects rather than as it were pitching at uh, uh at an individual donor um so i think it, it, that theme of collaboration is is really central in women's philanthropy
0: i love that and that you're right i think we're guilty often of when we create that kind of assembly you did uh, many of us in the nonprofit space are just simply trying to pitch them for money. And what yeah. I guess you're suggesting, Chris, is maybe we'd be better off orienting them to the issue we're facing in our community and, and utilizing their brain power, And that might in fact lead to philanthropy down the road. Well, absolutely.
1: And, and, you know, that's a, that's a key point about, uh, about fundraising, um, that, that, uh, I've learned, frankly, I've learned the hard way. Um, which is, um, and again, you know, I'm sure this applies equally where, where you are, but certainly here, here in Europe um, I've really moved away from talking about major donors um, and, 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 and just fundraising. Um, because folk, folk here, and these women are, are examples, uh, you know, folk here who, who are uh, high net worth individuals, have yes they have money but much 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 more than that they have experience they have special knowledge they have circles of influence and contact um they 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 may have some degree of notoriety they're they're well known in other words um you know they they have potentially enormous strategic value to your organization much more than the than the, than the simple business of writing you a cheque or making it, as we would hear, right, uh, sending you a bank transfer. We don't really do cheques anymore. Exactly.
0: Electronic, yes.
1: A bad thing a long time ago. Um, so that they have a much greater value. And when, when, as a non-profit leader, you think about that in relation to how your organization is structured, it, you come to the very, I think, I hope you come to the very interesting conclusion, which is, Boy, you know, maybe for years we've had the fundraising team in the sort of third office along the corridor, you know, busying away at, uh, at their direct marketing programs and raising money that way and so on. But actually, when when we're talking about philanthropists, our fundraising team is bring, are bringing in people who uh, have a strategic value to our organization. They can help us get to a, a new place as an organization. So maybe we shouldn't just stick everything into that fundraising team down the corridor. Maybe we should draw them a bit more in to the way that that the organization is running itself and, and treat these individuals as strategic donors, not as major donors.
0: I love that. And I'm struck by your point, Chris, about maybe reconsidering our terminology. You know, if we only call these people major donors or come to our donor event, or anything else that uses, I think, limiting terminology. Mm. It seems to me that's what you're pointing out to us that, all right, well, then you've, you've narrowed the potential maybe for that person or that family to really be involved because we've classified them in purely a transactional sense.
1: Yeah, exactly, yeah, we need to move and, and I'm sure, I'm quite sure that the, the folk who are listening to this are doing this already. I'm quite sure you're <laughs> right, already. Right. No, no, I'm sure you're thinking about this this stuff. But, but it, it's it's something that it's it's a lesson. You know, I, t- I teach fundraising here at the University at the University of Barcelona. Um, I, I also teach at the other university here, and you know, it's something that I get across to the students as early as possible. That you know, your fundraising job, which used to be fundraising going out the money
0: yes, is right. now
1: much much more strategic you know you're much more you're in a very different place from where you were even even five years ago now because you're looking to develop the organization from a strategic point of view or develop, develop the organization along strategic lines and so you need to be building relationships with companions who will join you along that road and they'll give you money yes but actually what they'll mainly do it
0: support you as you go along the road. Uh, Chris, I'm going to appeal to your excellent teaching skills because I know that's one of the the takeaways you want nonprofit leaders to understand, the, the strategic value of major donors. And well, maybe you could, I guess, maybe expand further or reiterate that point that we should be looking at more from our donors than just the dollars and maybe talk about what that could look like.
1: Well, it's, you know, it's, um, it's easy to talk about, uh, actual examples, you know? So, so, um, uh, one organization that, um, that, uh, I've been working with, well, it's the same organization as the Hospital Clowns here. Well, a clown, Hospital Clowns are very serious people when it comes to the fundraising Yeah,
0: part. absolutely. <laughs>
1: there's no laughs, but, <laughs> but, um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's here in Barcelona. Uh, it's a mid-sized organization. It's, um. Uh, it, it, and, and it's its fundraising to date has been principally around you know, give us twenty dollars 20 euros to help a clown bring a, bring a, a smile to the child of a face in the hospital right um, but working with you know working with strategic donors what, what we what we realized is that um, we were having a, an impact um, an impact that we thought we could measure. Uh, on the on the, on the lives of these children. I mean, beyond the emotional impact, you know, we actually thought they were getting better quicker. And one of our uh, one of our philanthropists um, funded a study, uh, funded the end two studies on the impact of uh, of clowns in in hospitals. And indeed, we demonstrated that indeed we did have you know an actual medical impact on uh, on individuals in in hospital. Wow. And, and, you know they, it, it was a donation but what they mainly what they mainly did was they said look you know you should do this study folks you know because if you do this study you can go to other donors and persuade them much easier that they should part with their cash for you because you know you can demonstrate actual impact and that's the sort of thing I mean by strategic donors they actually you know move you along a strategic path um, and and that's why you know the role of a fundraiser is shifting uh, so much here in europe
0: more than just the dollars, and and Chris, you've been attuned, I guess, in particular in your research to the political connections, or is that something else you look for, in terms of again more than just their direct philanthropic giving, but maybe how they could influence certain political spheres to benefit the nonprofit.
1: Well, yeah, and we we obviously need to be careful here. Nonprofits, um, you know, pure nonprofits here, have to be nonpolitical. Indeed, but I do. I do love a good campaign. And, so, and <laughs> right. so, whether it's a campaign for women's rights, or whether it's a campaign um, for you know the liberation of political prisoners, or whatever it is, I'm I'm up, I'm, there, I'm up there on the front line. I do like a nice campaign. But um, you know, when you're particularly when you're running an organisation that has a has a campaigning mode, or, or you want to persuade people, let's put it more gently, persuade people to, to shift their their opinions, having uh, an individual uh, who maybe he's only giving you a modest amount of money. But she's making some fantastic introductions for you into, you know, your your government or your government structures.
0: Good point. Uh,
1: but that is just so so valuable because you, you know, it would cost you tens of thousands to achieve those contacts through some kind of bought purchased lobbying process. But you know, here's someone who's actually willing to 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 make the introductions and get you in into the right, in front of the right people, um, and uh, and that's you know really invaluable for organisations.
0: Chris, is that a good example of prospect research? I, I would think many nonprofit leaders may not fully understand what it is. You know, I'm keeping track of the money raised. I've got all the contact information, but I suppose that's why people bring you in. Uh, but also maybe you could explain, you know, what is good prospect research look like?
1: Good prospect research is um, is information at the right moment explained in exactly the right way (laughs) good um and and uh it's you know it 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 isn't just gathering facts anymore you know increasingly uh, prospect researchers are getting engaged in you know once they've spent two days reading about a reading about an individual they are getting engaged in the process of saying well how do we plan to build a relationship with this individual, you know what are her, what are her strengths or weaknesses? How can we, uh, you know, what, which of her her, her strengths could we, could 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 be useful to us as an organisation in terms of her her contacts and so on? And uh, also getting involved in the whole business of due diligence. Increasingly, as 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 you all know, you know we, we we've suffered in, in 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 Europe as as I'm sure you have in the US. With with various scandals around the area of of, of fundraising and donations, okay. and so prospect researchers are increasingly engaged in in, in due diligence work to to ensure that um, when we when we are in front of a philanthropist that we know really lots and lots about her and we can you know we can be sure that um, the money that she might be offering or the support she might be offering or the image she might be offering is is one that uh, would would we can safely ally to our, our
0: own name and brand. You use the phrase, Chris, uh, we need to be careful about ethical traps. Uh, I wonder, can you give me an example? What is, and perhaps that's what you mean by prospect research, help us avoid ethical traps, but what, what might that look like or what, need, what might we need to be aware of?
1: Well, um, there's, there's lots of stories I can tell uh, here. About about um, about ethics in, in, in fundraising. Uh, there's some big headline cases that have occurred. Um, for example, with universities in the UK accepting gifts from individuals who turned out not to be as as as, as decent as as as, <laughs> as as might have been hoped for in the right. you know, in terms of the in terms of the fundraising. Um, ethics is such a huge area. I I, I think. It, two two points i make two points one is for 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 for, um, non-profit leaders um one is um to be clear to clearly distinguish between ethics and reputation you know on the one hand you've got you know should my um my environmental organization uh accept a large gift from a a major oil company
0: yeah good point
1: that's you know that it might be ethics, but it's probably reputation. In other words, we wouldn't want our lovely green organisation to be um, to be soiled, if I can use that phrase, right. with, uh, you know, with the brand name of, very, of a very large uh, oil extraction company. So it's probably reputational. But you know, should we uh, should we as an organisation accept money from? this individual this individual who's um made her made her money in 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 ways that i as a non-profit leader my colleagues in this organization my board you know it makes us all feel a bit uncomfortable right that's probably more of an ethical that's probably more of an ethical question i think we need to you know be clear whether we're talking simply about our brand and reputation or whether we're talking about the stuff that makes us feel really uneasy and and i end up thinking about the ethical side uh, in very simple terms about being true to yourself about being true to your own values true to you know the values that you 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 hope that your organization has and i think when you measure when you look at potential donors with through those eyes you it's very frankly very easy to distinguish between the folk who you would say fantastic great well, welcome aboard <laughs> And the folk who you would say, oh, dear, no, you know, I'm not comfortable here. I want to get out. You know, so um, uh, I think we need to make that distinction. But, but above all, we need to be true to ourselves.
0: That's well put, Chris. And, and it strikes me that ethics and, and these types of issues are, are sometimes we, we stay away from them. They're vague. Uh, my board, my staff—we really don't understand exactly what that means. But it, I wonder if examples like you just suggested, maybe that that should be part of an annual board d- retreat. Let's talk about hypothetically what mm. type of giving we would or would not be comfortable with individually and collectively, and that to me would be a good way to avoid ethical traps.
1: Indeed, uh, you know, of course, this stuff changes over time. You know, um, fifty years ago. I wouldn't have said that sentence about oil majors. Right, right. Now, now with you know, Fridays for Future and the climate climate emergency and so on, you know, it's the, it's, it's probably almost a cliche to say it. You know, so stuff stuff like this changes as uh, sensibilities change over time, um, and and I think we you know we, we just need to have that fantastic emotional radar that we have in our hearts, which tells us you know this is stuff that this is good stuff and this is not good stuff. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's that's it's a great way to put it, even though it's hard sometimes to put it in words. um, We need to have those conversations. And uh, well, Chris, I have one more thing on my checklist for you, so to speak, of great advice you've given. Um, You've talked about and alluded to the different cultural differences. And I know our mutual colleague, Mike Smith, mentioned this on his episode when we were talking about, of course, he was working Special Olympics Europe. And you see this directly too, but I think it is um, applicable anywhere in the world. We all have cultural differences, but how do you kind of advise nonprofit leaders to i guess be sensitive to these cultural differences and and better work through them
1: well um as, as Mike may well have said, you know I live in a European Union with twenty four official languages and sixty regional and minority languages and each, wow. of those language, each of those language groups, I speak, um, I think a total of six of them that a lot, um, each of those language groups has got you know, their own uh, you know, cultural views on, on, on philanthropy. Uh, I mean, most, most obviously the word charity, which is the word that's still used in the UK, UK English, to describe non-profits. You know, charity here in, in Catalonia really means poverty relief driven by a religious ethic it's a very
0: specific
1: is a very specific activity with a religious belief behind it you know um, it's you know the, 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 the variety of different views on philanthropy is uh, is extraordinary across across Europe we're mixing all kinds of traditions you know in Spain Spain was um, was, a, was a Muslim country for, for many hundreds of years until right, uh, right. until 1492. And so the you know the the oldest, you know, the earliest foundations uh, here were were Muslim foundations, um, um, and so we've got you know we've got those traditions, we've got a Catholic later Catholic traditions on top of that, and now we live in a very 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 multicultural society with with those two religious groups, but lots of other religious groups and languages uh, uh, as well. Um, th- working with philanthropy, you, you know you're you're working you're always working with the most almost the almost the most intimate part of people's lives you know you're working with the stuff that they feel very deeply the 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 beliefs that they have that they've had for for a long time you're you're working at a level with individuals which you know in almost any other area apart from perhaps being a confessional priest you, (laughs) you don't get to you don't get to work in you know and again for me this is one of the fascinating and wonderful things about working in this in this sector and so in that process of getting to know your donor and it i think in europe it takes us a lot longer to get to know donors than maybe it does with you in the usa i mean very typically it will take me you know 18 months to 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 get to know someone to the point where i feel i can kind of invite them to participate in a program you know um so getting as you get to know them you know you do pick up the these cultural differences between individuals and 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 it becomes as i say a very a very wonderful and special relationship when you when you get there
0: yeah that's so well put chris and it, it strikes me as a takeaway that we may not have the different languages directly affecting our philanthropy and our communications here in the the us but we also we do have very distinct cultural differences you know from small town to urban centers to individual and family philanthropy, to corporate and foundation work, and your point about we need to make sure our message translates, right? And we can't yeah. expect one size to fit all. And so, uh, Chris, advice has been fantastic across the board. I'm eager to kind of organize this. And of course, we'll put this in our show notes. Uh, is there anything else, I guess, in summary, you might offer a nonprofit leader who's navigating the perfect storm, trying to do a better job in their fundraising and prospect research, but any other advice you might offer?
1: Enjoy every day.
0: (laughs) Good. (laughs) uh, I mean, I have, have,
1: I've got no idea what 2021 will bring for us, you know, Um, and I I wish all of your listeners the very best for 2021, but um, get up in the morning, make the most of the day. That's the
0: best thing to say. That's, that's wonderful and appropriate. And let me ask you one more favor as a parting gift. Uh, you know, I asked my guests kind of for a, a book that's been meaningful to their professional journey. Is there one you might offer our listeners in that category?
1: Well, I'm afraid, Pat, I just cannot stand management books. I can't <laughs> Good. People.
0: Give me something so else then. Yes. I'm going to give
1: you something else uh i recently read a book which really had an impact on me it's called poverty safari understanding the anger of britain's underclass interesting it's written by by a guy called darren mcgarvey who was brought up in a very 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 um underprivileged area of glasgow and he writes about about poverty and what it's like how you live it what happens in it and you know how he eventually escapes it, and it's the most extraordinary uh, book. And, and this is the sort of book that gives gives me the motive to go up in the morning and work hard for philanthropy. You know that I know we're doing stuff for other people, and and if I if I can feel that I can help one other life, then I, I feel I've you know, done a good thing in the day. You know, so so yeah, that's what motivates me.
0: I can't think of a better reason to put a recommendation like that forward. So Chris, thank you. We will happily put Poverty Safari on our list and associated with this episode. And Chris, where can folks go to, to find out more about you and the great work you're doing and research and teaching and of course, consulting? Well,
1: first of all, again, thanks very much for inviting me onto the, onto the, onto the broadcast. And, and, um, Uh, I'd welcome, I'm very happy to talk to anyone about uh, what's going on here in terms of philanthropy in in Europe. Uh, You can contact me via our website, which is at factory.com, factory.com, or my email, chrisfactory.com. And I welcome any of your listeners and I'm delighted, delighted to talk to them.
0: Chris, this has been fantastic. Thank you for your advice. Best wishes as you move forward into 2021, helping so many organizations. And thank you again for joining me on the path.
1: That's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Chris as much as I did and came away with some practical ideas that can guide your fundraising, both individually and for your organization. Don't forget about the show notes. They are available on our website, PattonMcDowell.com, where you can find out more about Chris's organization, his publications, and some other episodes that also feature global perspectives. Once again, don't forget about the podcast survey. Let us know what you think. Give us some ideas, and we will feature three worthy nonprofit organizations on our special New Year's Eve episode. As always, please share this episode with someone else on the path. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe by going to the podcast page at patentmcdowell.com and you'll see links to Apple and other primary platforms. Don't miss out on any of our weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday as well as bonus features we're producing at least once a month. Thanks for all you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now. And keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week. And I'll see you next time on The Path.